From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana. Throughout the season of Lent, we are continuing our spiritual practice that we are calling fasting from whiteness. We are choosing to place at the very center of the worship life of this church the voices of black people, indigenous people, and other people of color. The right-wing echo chamber in this country loves nothing more than spinning yarns of wars on Christmas and all manner of attacks on the sincerely held religious beliefs of some. But this claim, devotion to religious freedom, evaporates when the beliefs in question differ from the quasi-fundamentalist, nationalistic, and exclusionary doctrine that holds such dominance in our culture and public awareness. Never was this hypocrisy on display as revealingly as when a Chicagoland church chose to travel a novel and reflective path through the holy Christian season of Lent, declaring a quote, fast from whiteness. Well, these same folks, demanding religious conscience, rights for cake makers and county clerks, went ballistic and instigated an attack on the congregation that continues to reverberate. We'll get a first-person look at this series of events with Pastor John Edgerton of the targeted First United Church of Oak Park. The peace prayer of St. Francis, O Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. But Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. It was one of the iconic images from 9-11. Rescuers rushing the lifeless body of a Catholic priest from Ground Zero at the World Trade Center in New York. The body was that of Father Michael Judge, a Catholic priest and chaplain to the city's fire department, designated victim 0001, the Franciscan friar, has been profiled often since that horrific day and even nominated for sainthood. Now, a comprehensive biography presents the life and ministry of Father Michael, and we'll hear from the author Francis Bernardo on this week's State of Belief Radio. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and a time to come together. The global pandemic blocked the way for countless gatherings these past few years, not the least of which is the annual American Atheists Convention. 
But last weekend, more than 550 atheists, freethinkers, humanists, and other non-believers met in Atlanta to reconnect, learn, strategize, and fundraise for charity. Meanwhile, in Dillsburg, Pennsylvania, the school board squashed plans by a parent to establish an after-school Satan club at Northern Elementary. With several schools in the district offering extracurricular religious programming, the idea was to provide an alternative. But no such luck in Dillsburg. The club idea is real. It comes from the Satanist Temple and is offered in a handful of school districts, including Moline, Illinois. But by all means, SCOTUS, yes, let's bring prayer back to the public school classroom itself. What could possibly go wrong? And on Friday, numerous faith-oriented groups and communities were among those observing Earth Day, the 52nd year of raising up the need to protect creation. Events included lectures, seminars, prayer gatherings, iftars, and more. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it. You can do it. Today, State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very sincere thank you. Now, if you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now, to our first guest. Reverend John Edgerton is lead pastor at First United Church of Oak Park near Chicago. This year, during the pre-Easter season of Lent, which calls Christians to reflection and contemplation, the socially conscious welcoming congregation undertook a fast from whiteness, an idea that requires both nuance and thoughtfulness to understand. But that didn't stop the rabid right-wing outrage machine from bringing the fires of heck to bear on the faith community, both because it's a storytelling in its own right and a frightening example of how far off the rails the right-wing religious freedom industry has gone, I am grateful to be joined right now by Reverend Edgerton. John, uh, you've been through a whole lot. Thank you for finding time to be with us today on State of Belief Radio. Well, thank you for the invitation, Welton, and good good to be here with you. A fast from whiteness. Now, I can see how those words, those three words, could be a trigger for the screaming heads who don't look beyond, well, the first three words. What, in fact, is the premise and the promise of the fast? To me, this begins from an understanding of what the Christian practice of fasting is all about, and you don't fast from things that are ugly. You don't fast from things that are despicable. You fast from things that do tug at your heart, that do take up space in your heart and in your life. And fasting from those things is done for a season in order to open up space in your life, open up space in your heart and in your spirit for 
the divine to enter. And so for us, this fast from whiteness looked like removing things like Bach or Mozart or Messian or those kinds of, of wonderful contributions to sacred music that I do love and that have shaped me. And by clearing out that space in our communal worship life, we created space for new voices like Stephen Cuthbert Molefe from South Africa and, uh, and a host of other voices that have made amazing contributions to sacred music for us. And so this has really been a fast in that spiritual sense. Well, what do you see as the valuable goals behind launching such uh, an initiative? This is a time in our nation, like other seasons as well, when we must reckon with the history of race and racism in this country. And it is incumbent upon the faith community to take up the work of anti-racism now, to find ways to extricate white-centeredness, white the assumption that whiteness is the norm. The church, if we are to be faithful to Jesus Christ, who was a dark-skinned man from a poor part of town, if we are to be faithful to Jesus as we meet him in the Gospels, then we must find ways to move beyond white-centeredness in our faith. And this is work that can only be done by predominantly white churches, because our voices will always have a hearing, will always have a place in the public square, or predominantly white congregations like ours to take up this work is, is crucial and life-giving work for our nation today. So what kind of activities or actions did you encourage congregants to take as a part of this effort? Well, I'm very glad you asked that. I think that in the national conversation around this, this has focused entirely on our musical choices. But for, for your listeners who are familiar with church, this was a whole church-wide program built around this theme. And it actually began with our Sunday school. That's how all of this began, was our partnering with a local congregation, St. Christopher's Episcopal Church, which had created a Montessori-style Sunday school program begun as started by a woman named Jan Enriquez that's called Tell Me the Truth About Racism. And in an age-appropriate way and in a spiritual way, we taught about the history of this country, the painful history of 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 how this country has treated people of color, Native people, Indigenous people. And we hold up the truth that God has made all people beloved. And we hold that up against what we call the lie, which is that some people are better than others. And that lie is at the core of so much misery. From there, we decided this six-week long program fit nicely with the six weeks of Lent. And so... Why not build our entire worship life around this same theme, around anti-racism work? And so we did this in our music. We did this in our liturgy. We did this with 
the bulletin cover art highlighting the photography of James C. Lewis, who has made an unbelievable series called Icons of the Bible, 163 photographic portraits of figures from the faith and figures from the Bible with models for these photographs being entirely people of color. It is a gorgeous and stunning contribution to sacred art. In addition to our musical programs, we were inviting people to take up the reality, the reparative work of pushing against the the racist way that copyright law has worked in this country. Mm-hmm. I think that in deciding that we were going to use a great deal of music that was part of the African-American spirituals tradition, for example, we knew that those works are predominantly in the public domain. And they are in the public domain because of systemic racist history of how the copyright laws have worked. And so although when we pay for, although when we sing songs by Ruth Duck or Marty Haugen, we will have our, we will pay royalties through CCLI licenses, for example. If we were to take up in earnest singing far more songs from the spiritual tradition, we would be contributing to the lack of fair compensation for artists of color who have made these contributions. And so what we did was we decided that we would follow a practice begun by First United Parish of Brookline in Massachusetts of paying royalties in the form of taking up uh, money that we pay to a local nonprofit that is on the south side of Chicago that does work with young people of color. And so this is this is our way of trying to do some reparative work in in a way that is appropriate for church. And so this was this was a um, this was about so much more than the selection of hymns mm-hmm. for our for our congregation, and it was so rich and rewarding as as a spiritual journey. One thing that is always important to me as a pastor is to explain the practices of the church as if those who are hearing them are hearing them for the first time. For some people, that is literally true. As fewer and fewer people grow up in church, people come later in life for many reasons and, and may never have practiced a Lenten fast before. And for others, it is simply important to explain it as if for fresh ears so that they might experience it anew as well. Mm. And so we began with simple teaching of the traditions of the church, explaining what a fast is all about, explaining why we fast, trying to extricate it as much as possible from feelings of, of shame, but rather about opening up space inside the spirit yeah. so that the time of Lent could be, right. uh, could be one of, of depth of spiritual journey. So that was really yeah. how we began, just yeah. by teaching on a basic level what Lent well, it's is It's a great way, great way to begin. How big is your congregation, and uh, did pretty much everybody take part? So our membership is 650 people or so. Mm-hmm. The and for us, as many other churches, Lent is one of our most well-attended seasons mm-hmm. of the year. Mm-hmm. Advent is a high season for attendance, and Lent, too, is a high season for attendance. And so we we experienced in this period of time 
an unusually high level of participation, even by the standards of Lent. We had many more time sitters than we normally would have. We had greater uh, attendance in our in-person services. We had greater attendance in our online option as well, since that we are, like many faith communities, having a hybrid service, some in-person, some online. Mm-hmm. And so the, the engagement was was really very strong, and people were just loving the programming that we were doing. Hmm. That's great. Please talk about the uh, what kind of backlash came, because we know there was an incredible backlash uh, that, that came um, – from the right-wing echo chamber. Talk about that. This came as as a real surprise to us. Um, I am a person, I've been pastoring for about 12 years, and I've always had church programming and sermon series and that kind of thing, and uh, never has the programming of my church sparked even local news coverage, much less national and international <laughs> news coverage. So this was a surprise. We uh, awoke on a Tuesday, the Tuesday before Palm Sunday, and we found that uh, this had been covered on Charlie Kirk's radio show for Turning Point USA. That story quickly was picked up, and within a day, it had become national and even international news, with the core of what was being reported always being the text written by the Turning Point USA author. Mm-hmm. And we started receiving an enormous number of messages across all platforms. Our phones were ringing off the hook. We were receiving five voicemails per minute, voicemails per minute. At one point, we were receiving over the course of of a, I would say, two days, we received well over a thousand messages of voicemails, emails, messages on Facebook. Um, and I won't even begin to estimate the social media comments that, um, so it was, it was, and in, initially it was a flurry of, of negative comments. By the following week, however, we were receiving a large number of messages of support as well. Mm. So that was, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> How did you feel about receiving all of these things that were negative? Well, we really received three different kinds of of negative messages. One was thoughtful, scripturally-based criticism from other Christians taking issue with what we had done. The second was comments which were composed entirely of the basest vulgarity, And both of those are fine, although I much prefer the former to the latter. Both of those are fine. The third kind of of communication that we got were threats. And those were made mostly against me personally, but also against a specific threat against our Palm Sunday service, Mm -hmm. where an individual said that they were going to, after indicating in colorful language that they were not pleased with what we had done, saying that he was going to bring 
a, a bunch of people with him and come to our service on Palm Sunday and quote, we should have a real good time together. And again, given the context of the rest of his message, it was clear that he was not going to bring us a large cake. <laughs> so the, this was that making threats against people because you do not like the way that they practice their religion. Yeah. That is a crime. And we reported those things to law enforcement. We worked with local and federal law enforcement to investigate those things. And it is un-American to threaten people because of the way that they practice their faith. You've spoken eloquently about uh, this experience uh, being an attack on religious freedom. Well, freedom of speech is certainly a a centrally important part of our Constitution, and in this very same amendment is guaranteed the right of the free exercise of religion. And that is that also involves being free from harassment and threats. That's a civil right. Those in the as our civil rights are protected, they are protected not only from government overreach, but certain civil rights are protected also from our fellow Americans seeking to infringe upon those for other Americans. And so this is a question for me about the civil rights of our congregation to freely practice our religion. And I think that for our congregation, this was a, this was a very challenging period of time. We were not able to gather on Palm Sunday in person, which is, which I grieve. Mm -hmm. We, were we were pilloried in the national and international media and our you know the the good name of our congregation was dragged through the mud and that's something that that i do not accept i'm not going to accept that as something which is simply a par for the course or or part of what it means to be a christian in today's world and so i think that our congregation learned that the stances that we have long taken for racial equity, anti-racism work, this is decades long work that this congregation has been involved in for a long time, that this work is costly at times and joyful always and worth doing, particularly now. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about what other churches need to learn from what you learned? We have received so much support and love and solidarity from churches across the country. We've even received messages from from Christians in the Netherlands, from as far away as the Netherlands. The, The church as a whole has been tremendously supportive, and I thank God for the church in this. And we as Christians, I think, need to learn that we have to stand up for one another's stand up for one another's rights to be people of faith. And whether a church in whether a, a Christian in another part of the country or even here locally, whether they liked the way that we were practicing our Lenten fast or disliked it. Mm-hmm. I would hope that they come away from this saying, I want my congregation to be able to proclaim the gospel as we see fit. And we must stand up for our ability to do that. Yeah. It is very easy to 
find ourselves bifurcated into one side and another side, one team and another team. And I would hope that all churches and people of all persuasions in this country would recognize that it is a foundational principle in our country that people of faith ought to be able to practice their faith freely and without the threat of intimidation or violence from any source. And that makes me ask, did did you have any idea this level of attack was even possible in the United States in 2022? In something of a of an odd coincidence, I am the chair of a task force on the national level of the United Church of Christ, which is doing work, putting plans in place for congregations who find themselves targeted by extremism. And so I've been working on this for the better part of a year, even before this came knocking on our door. And so there are, I know that there are places in this country, faith communities in this country, where pastors in my denomination have had rainbow painted doors of their church set on fire, who have had, who have made public proclamations of, of anti-racism work, putting up Black Lives Banner signs, having those things defaced, having their homes surrounded by trucks with large floodlights on them in the middle of the night. Uh, these are things that are happening today in this country. And I, I knew that that was a part of what was going on. And perhaps out of naivete, I was surprised that this happened to us. That was still a surprise to me. And I came away from it understanding better some of the ways that this works in our country now. Mm-hmm. In particular, the the way that this worked for us was Turning Point USA, which is a far-right organization, which your listeners can read more about on the Anti-Defamation League website or on the Southern Poverty Law Center website. This is an organization that has been under investigation for racial bias and illegal campaign activity. Turning Point USA began this whole process with a story that they published on their through their mechanisms. That was then picked up that very day, quoted verbatim and published simultaneously by Sinclair Broadcast Group affiliates. These are NBC, CBS, ABC affiliates across the country. Broadcast that same day, quoted in its entirety, this Turning Point USA piece. This was the crucial moment in this because what had been a far-right organization smear piece took on the veneer of legitimate journalism because of the action of Sinclair Broadcast Group to do this in this way. The next day, the Sinclair Broadcast Group pieces were quoted by the New York Post, by the Daily Mail, and the next day, Fox and Friends takes it up and says and begins their piece with, you've got to hear this, as if it came as a surprise to them, rather than there being one part of a sophisticated media machine that is intent on on fighting culture wars. And so that's how that happened for us. That's how the that playbook worked and looked for us. And I know that uh, even knowing what I do, I was still surprised that it that one church's little banner on their front lawn could become international news. That was still surprising. 
The Reverend John Edgerton is lead pastor at United Church of Oak Park, Illinois. You can read more about the incredible attack from the right, the congregations fast from whiteness sparked in Fred Clarkson's Religion Dispatches article. And Nathan Imsall at Faithful America has launched a public response that he'd love your participation in. We'll link to both of those from stateofbelief.com. John, thank you so much for this measured and meaningful look at the terrifying aspect of the betraying of America's foundational values by the right wing and its minions. The conversation is sure to be a great value to many listeners of State of Belief. That's why we are so grateful that you joined us for this time today. Well, thank you for the opportunity to to be here. I appreciate it. Up next, a new book on the life and ministry of Father Michael Judge. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows. All of that at stateofbelief.com. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. Father Michael Judge was a Franciscan friar, a Catholic priest, a fire department chaplain, and an active participant in ministry to New York City's LGBT Catholic community. After his death at the World Trade Center on 9-11, he was also revealed to have been gay himself. In the years since, Father Michael has gained icon status with campaigns underway to canonize him as a saint. Now a new biography from Francis Di Bernardo, longtime head of the Catholic LGBT advocacy group, New Ways Ministry, offers a deeper understanding of this man and his ministry. Francis, uh, welcome back to State of Belief Radio, and I'm really eager to talk with you about this. Well, I'm glad to be here, and I love talking about Father Michael. So, who was Father Michael? Well, he was a very authentic human being. I I think that is the, the main thing that I've learned in researching his life. He was a man who was became uh, very aware of his strengths and his weaknesses, and he did have weaknesses and acknowledged those. But in acknowledging his weaknesses, I think that he learned to rely, rely a lot on the power of God working through him. And um, I think that's what 
really distinguished him so well, so much from from other um, uh, Catholic priests at the time and, mm-hmm. and even now. The stories of his uh, ministry to AIDS patients and other marginalized persons are legend. Uh, talk about that side of his personality and of his ministry. Well, I think it's important to um, to remember to to recognize that he um, turned to ministry to the marginalized after after a, a pretty strong career in mainstream ministry. For over 25 years, uh, he was a parish priest, the most ordinary ministry of all in, in, uh, for the Catholic clergy. Uh, and uh, during that time, um, he um, became um, aware of both his sexuality and he became aware and and addressed his alcoholism as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think his workaholism uh, too. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in doing that, he, he got in touch with the need to um, go to the margins of society, uh, to the people who were the weakest, to the people who were the most left out, mm-hmm. and so I think his his ministry to uh, people with HIV/AIDS, to those who are homeless, to those who um, are were LGBT, um, I think all sprung from his own development as a person, um, and and recognizing that. You know that um, God welcomed everyone mm. uh, into the fold, and and I think that that was true also because of his Franciscan spirituality. Mm-hmm. His Franciscan spirituality, uh, Franciscan life, Franciscan philosophy teaches that you know that God is in all creation, mm-hmm. um, and and that God could be found anywhere and everywhere. Francis, uh, some anti-gay voices in the church have loudly denied the reality of his sexual orientation, but the evidence is right there from uh, colleagues who knew and respected him as well uh, as his own writings. Isn't that right? Yes. He, he kept a journal, um, for a short period of time, and there are a number of references to his awareness of his gay identity in mm-hmm. in the journal. And, and and why is it important to highlight the fact that Father Michael was gay? I think it's important because some people of faith, not just in the Catholic Church, um, but in other Christian churches too, I think there are some people who consider um, an LGBT identity as incompatible with yeah. Christianity. Yeah. And I think that um, it's important to recognize that 
someone we who we revere as an icon um that among his many um different facets of his personality and of his spirituality was the fact that he was gay yeah, that I'm you sorry. could you know i think he he his life proves that you know you can be gay and you can be holy yeah he did so much for lgbt uh, catholics in new york uh, what do we know about father michael's feelings regarding his own sexual orientation i i think that father michael one of the best things about him is that um he integrated his sexuality into his personality hmm. it wasn't something um that was compartmentalized and often when people compartmentalize their sexuality you know just leave it in one area of their life that uh that's when um uh, aberrant behavior often manifests mm-hmm. uh but i think that he um he recognized um his sexuality as being an important part of who he was and as a a way to relate to god um in a unique way what kind of person was he mm-hmm. the the biggest impression uh i i got from learning about him was that he was a very gregarious person mm-hmm. He was very outgoing, and he loved human beings. He just loved to be around people, and he loved seeing the unique things of people. So he was comfortable with people who had no homes. He was comfortable with suburban middle-class people in the parishes where he worked. He was comfortable with with uh, the firefighters who lived, you know, on dangerous edges. He was comfortable with people who had HIV AIDS who were um, you know, facing at the time a, a certain death sentence. Um and and he found God in in all of those different types of people yeah. and and rejoiced in it. He developed a very optimistic outlook. He did have times, and don't want to paint him, you know, sure. with all brush with all positive brushstrokes. He did have times of of sorrow and 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 you know what mm-hmm. we might call depression. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think overall, he learned that um, he he exhibited a. Um, an appreciation for mm-hmm. uh, for the diversity of human beings that that he came in contact with. Tell us about the I- initiative to uh, elevate uh, Father Michael to sainthood. What, what's the process like, and why is he a good candidate? My organization, New Ace Ministry, uh, has been trying to help form a group of people who will work uh, seriously towards his canonization as a saint. Um, I've been in touch with a priest from the Vatican who who wants to promote 
um, Father Judge's cause for canonization. Mm-hmm. Um, but there has to be an organization who will raise money and and find people and help with research because it is a, a quite an extensive, time-consuming process. Um, so that's that's where we are now is trying to get an organization who will who will shepherd this cause through um, uh, through the church channels. What made you want to write this book? Well, I, you know, have been involved in LGBT ministry since 1992 for for 30 years now. I did not have the benefit, blessing, and pleasure to meet Father Judge, but the more that I learned about, um, the more that I learned about him, the more that I saw that he was. Um, a figure that needed to be raised up. Um, I, I guess what I really wanted to do was to focus not just on his biography, but on his spiritual biography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but what I have found in working with LGBT people is that they have a a unique spirituality. And when I wrote the book, I wanted to uh, when I sat down to start researching it, I wanted to find out what his spiritual al- what his spirituality was what his spiritual influences were yeah. and and i found that in addition to his gay identity there was his franciscan spirituality there was his alcoholics anonymous spirituality mm-hmm. there was his irish heritage spirituality and and there was his new york spirituality mm-hmm. he was a diehard new yorker mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that that his his love of the bustle uh, and diversity of the city uh, really helped him uh, grow closer to God. Yeah, Francis. While you're here, um, I, I want to ask you about a historic event that uh, took place last month. Uh, as I understand it, we saw the first Vatican representative meet with an openly LGBT Catholic group. Is that right? Yes, that is. The The Catholic Church, since last fall and onwards until 2023, is undergoing a, a, a synod process where Pope Francis has invited all Catholics to talk about and with each other and and with their leaders to talk about the direction that they want to see the church going in. Uh, It's really a a revolutionary and unique situation. And Pope Francis has specifically said that he wants to reach out not only to the church-going Catholics and and those who are very content with Catholicism, but with with those who have been alienated or marginalized. So we have been doing programs for uh, this synod, and one of the programs we did was invite one of the heads of the synod office, a French nun named Sister Natalie Beccart, to address uh, our supporters. Mm. And so on June 3rd, we had a Zoom webinar, um, and we had people from over 30 countries, mostly the U.S., listen to her talk about how the church wants to hear from them. 
So do, it was quite significant. Do you think this portends more such encounters going forward, or is some kind of conservative backlash within the church likely to follow? Well, that's a good question. I'm hoping for the former. I think that, that what this event did was was that it broke the ice. And I think that we will see other church officials be more open to following the example of this Vatican leader. There will be backlash, I, I can guarantee you. I mean, we've already seen it in the form of Catholic press condemning this this French nun for speaking to our group. But overall, the response has been positive. Francis, I, I don't want you to get away without uh, talking to our listeners about the organization you lead, New Ways Ministry, and uh, I'd like for you to tell them uh, how they can get involved in uh, following and supporting that work. New Ways Ministry, is we are 45 years old this year. We were founded by a priest and a nun who were uh, Sister Janine Gramick and Father Robert Nugent, who were pioneers of LGBT ministry in the Catholic Church. And we continue their mission uh, of what they saw as the way they describe it as building bridges of justice and reconciliation between the LGBT community and, and the wider church. So we have programs, we provide resources for pastoral ministry, for social justice, for developing spirituality, and people can find us on the web at www. And then this is all one word, newwaysministry.org. And when they get there, one of the things they'll find is our daily blog, uh, where we post every single day, and have been doing so for 10 years, on Catholic LGBTQ news, opinion, and spirituality, and it's a great way to, for people who are interested in the relationship of the Catholic Church and the LGBTQ community to keep up with the most current uh, events and current perspectives. Francis Di Bernardo is the longtime executive director of uh, New Ways Ministry. His uh, comprehensive biography of Father Michael Judge titled Take Me Where You Want Me to Go has just been published by Liturgical Press. Francis, it's always good to talk with you, and uh, thank you so much for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Well, it was my delight. Thank you for speaking with me. Same for us. Same for us. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Be part of the conversation. 
Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, you all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy. That state of belief. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. See what?